Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Curtis Van Wallingham, CEO of HydroStore, an energy storage tech company that's raised $322 million in funding. Curtis, thanks for chatting with me today. Happy to be here, Brett. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, so I'm co-founder and CEO of HydroStore. We're based in Toronto, Canada, and I guess I'm an engineer, MBA, uh, worked in capital projects and then the utility sector before I started HydroStore about 12 years ago. And yeah, live in Toronto, got a wife and a six-year-old son, and that's not like long walks on the beach, all that jive. <laughs> nice, nice. And two questions we'd like to ask, just better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as a leader. What CEO do you admire the most, and what do you admire about them? That's a tricky question. Someone I've been reading a lot about is Bob Iger, now, now back at Disney. What I really take from him is more about relationship building and strategic decisions and doing less things, but having them more impactful and being very thoughtful about how you're building the business. I'm less inspired, I guess, by the workaholic CEO that's just trying to do everything. And, and I try to model myself more as that, that calm, thoughtful person that makes the right steps at the right time to really build a, a strong business and then really values relationships with his team, customers, and, and kind of key stakeholders. So uh, I'd probably say Bob Iger if I had to be put on the spot. And what about books? Would it be uh, would it be Bob Iger's book, or are there any other books that really have had an impact on how you view the world and how you think about business? Yeah, I mean, I, I liked his The Ride of a Lifetime. I also like biographies of Elon Musk, Steve Jobs. Just you know, not that I necessarily want to model myself after them, but there's something to be said about learning their stories and how they've kind of come up. So. A lot of biographies that I read as well, and a whole range of different interesting people. And I always find that I take something from each one. Is there anyone random that you've read about, like a, like a non-business figure that you just found to be fascinating? Uh, you know, I was in India volunteering after my MBA, and I was my grandfather's brother was a Jesuit priest out there for decades. And when I was out there, I, I got to read a, a fair bit about Buddhism and that sort of thing. And there was a couple of books that I really well, I was, you know, living in this far off land kind of by myself. Uh, I spent some time in Bhutan and I was reading about Buddhists and their philosophy. And, and so that's probably the most random thing. I kind of went, went deep down a rabbit hole there for a while. And do you consider yourself a Buddhist now? I do not, but uh, I did take a fair bit from that time of my life. Nice. I just read a book called Why Buddhism is True, and it was a, a really fascinating book and just a, a good view into Buddhism. I didn't really know anything before that. Indeed. Yeah, no, it is fascinating. And uh, I think everyone could take a little bit from that. Absolutely. Nice. Well, let's uh, let's talk about what you're building now. So you've definitely reached into the territory of FU money, $322 million raised. So talk us through at a very high level, you know, what the company does and what you're doing with all of that capital. 
Yeah. So hydro storage. So what we do is we build energy storage facilities. So you can think of it like a battery because the wind's not always blowing. Sun's not always shining. You need something to store that electricity if we're going to decarbonize and, and rely on wind and solar for most of our electricity needs. And lithium ion batteries are quite expensive. They don't last that long. So they're good if you just need to store for an hour or two. But if you need to start storing for a day, 24 hours worth of power, lithium just non-economic there. So what we've done is we've made an air battery where we dig a, a hole in bedrock about 2,000 feet underground. And it's about size of maybe a couple cubic football fields of, of void space we build in the rock. You then flood it with water. And you use oil and gas equipment to pull air from the atmosphere. So just a big air compressor. And you send the air deep underground to start filling the cavern and it lifts the water up to a little surface reservoir. So when you're fully charged, the cavern's filled with compressed air and you've got a little surface reservoir filled with water. And then when the grid needs power, you open a valve and the weight of the water brings the air up and it spins a turbine. So it's an air rock and water battery it lasts 100 years and is really cheap to build compared to batteries. Um, and it can be built anywhere there's bedrock. So we patented that solution. We then had to show it would work, build small pilot plants, get the ability to wrap it, you know, guarantee and warranty that it would work when it was built, convince the construction companies that build caverns and mines, as well as the oil and gas equipment suppliers to sell us their equipment and stand behind it. And so once we put that all together, then we had to go show our business model would work and go get contracts for big facilities. So we started to develop projects, get interconnection rights to the grid, lock up land. And then we started signing contracts and we've you know, probably got about two and a half billion dollars worth of contract signs for two facilities uh, with more, more contracts to come. And uh, now we're going to start construction next year on those larger facilities. And so once we kind of hit that milestone of getting the commercial traction, patenting and proving out the solution, being able to warranty it, Goldman Sachs and the Canadian pension plan got behind us and gave us 250 million in growth funding to really just build a pipeline of dozens more of these projects and to advance the projects we do have through construction and into operation, which is then when we start earning real money uh, and those, those plants then are spitting off cash for the next 50 to 100 years. So we're excited about it, but it, it does move a little slow because we're doing big infrastructure. Wow. So a lot to unpack there. Let's start with where did this all begin? This isn't you know some little SaaS product that you could just you know, spin up and launch an MVP in a couple of weeks. I'm sure it took a lot of time before it got to the stage where you could really start to operationalize it. So what were the early days of the company like? And then how did you, you know, come up with this idea in the first place? Yeah, so it has been a while. You know, I started the business about 12 years ago. So it's been a long run to kind of get it to this point. And it was, you know, a pretty small team in those first three, four, five years. But where it all started is I was working at an electrical utility and it was, we had a, a big nuclear plant that doesn't turn up and down well. And we had to start turning it up and down depending on how windy it was because there was now enough wind on the grid and it kind of had priority to dispatch over us. And so the maintenance team came and said, like, you know, our budgets are going up. The, the reactor's not meant to operate this way. 
And so I tried to build a pumped hydro plant, which is pump water up a hill and then hold it there like a, like a dam when you need the power again. And those are almost impossible to permit. They're really tough to find sites. So we just weren't able to move one forward. I then tried looking at batteries. There was no way they were cost effective. And one of my analysts came to me and said, there's this guy in Canada that filed a patent for a new way of doing compressed air. And and compressed air was, there was a couple of plants built like 50 years ago, but they were only built on salt caverns and they still burnt some natural gas. So they had emissions. They weren't very efficient. And this guy came up with two innovations to basically totally change how you do compressed air. One was using these water compensated rock caverns. And the other one is storing a bunch of heat and hot water when the air is compressing. So we patented this and my analyst kind of connected me with him, set up a lunch. I had met the guy, his name's Cam Lewis. And he kind of said, I got a patent and I got an idea for a tech. And I came up with a company name, but that's about all I got. And I'm not too sure what to do next. So I got to know Cam, really liked him as a person, and I knew that this would have a you know big role to play in the energy transition. So I, I made the leap of faith back in 2010 to quit my job, put the first bit of money in and start you know getting my friends and family to give us a little bit of money and some angel investors. And, and then we just started plotting away on the engineering and these little pilot systems and, and try to get some grant money and And then we've just been slowly building it kind of brick by brick uh, over the last 12 years. And what was going through your head in 2010? Was that a very scary leap for you? Were you fearless going into it? Did you have friends and family asking if you were insane? What was that whole journey like for you in that starting point? I had spent the previous decade traveling the world, turning around troubled projects for a management consulting company. And I was exhausted, but I also made a fair bit of money in that. And so then when I joined this utility where I was in that planning role, that wasn't going to be the long-term career for me. So I was looking for what's next for me. And I didn't want to live on a plane. I wanted to start a family. And my older brother just had his daughter, my niece, Shay. And I remember thinking, you know, this is our generation's world war, this climate change, and we got to do something. And I go, I can't just be out there making money, not contributing. And then when Shay grows up and the world's burning, she's like, what did you do about it? And I said, nothing. I just watched it burn and, and made some money and made myself comfortable. So I really felt that I needed to get in the ring and try something. And I was tired of traveling. I was looking for my next thing. So with my wife's blessing, we you know, put a bunch of our life savings into a hydro store. And I went, I think it was three or four years without a salary. And it was, there was a lot of daunting times when, you know, you could have lost everything and it would have set your, your family back a long ways in terms of financial security. But I ultimately believed in the fundamentals of they need storage on the grid. If we're going to save the planet, we got to go to renewable electricity. And the fundamental engineering and physics of what we offer is pretty compelling vis-a-vis batteries and alternatives. So I just kept the faith that there would be a way and we've had many pivots along the journey. But yeah, there definitely was some white knuckle moments along the ride. Are there any specific moments that you can remember where you had to throw in the towel or, or just felt like you couldn't continue any longer? Yeah, there was kind of two that were the jump out most. You know, one was when my, my son was born, but he, it was not a a straightforward birth and he ended up, you know, almost not making it and being in the the ICU 
for a number of weeks and the company was out of money. And we were, I remember being in there, my wife had an operation, my son was in that, that natal ICU. And I'm sitting there trying to close an investment. I really thought about hanging it up there. And through a bit of luck, we ended up closing that financing and it was with great partners that really stuck with us. So that was one that I, I really thought we were done. And then when COVID hit, we were in the middle of raising money and we only had you know six or seven weeks of cash left. And then COVID hit and every investor just said, I'm not getting involved or I'm not making commitments until we know where it's happening in the world. So that me and a bunch of others mortgaged homes and put more money in to get the company to survive. And, and then we win our first contract, but it's in Australia and we don't have any people in Australia and they shut the border. And then I had to frantically get a JV partner so that we could move the project forward. And that was really trying time as well. But um, again, happily, we made it through uh, with a bit of luck. Wow. Yeah, it's always amazing to hear what's happening behind the scenes and what that journey is like to build a successful company because it's so hard and so painful. And I feel like in the media, a lot of the times, you don't hear those stories. You just hear about you know the big fundraising announcements, the big exits, but you don't hear about the pain that happens along the way. It has been painful. I was on a panel and they said, if you knew, knew what you know now, would you have done it again? And the honest answer is, I would have had a, a really tough time making the same decision to plunge in because it's been really hard on your health, your family, just a really, really long, hard road. I mean, I am proud and happy we've, we've kind of made it to this point, but, but boy, it was a lot harder than what I was expecting. It took a lot longer. Yeah, I can imagine. And starting in 2010, I feel like that was uh, you know climate tech or energy tech before it was cool. Now it seems like everyone's talking about it. There's a lot of activity. What was it like in those early days trying to convince investors to fund this type of thing? And how have you seen the space evolve over the last 12 years? Yeah, it's night and day. I mean, especially here in, in Canada, I think, you know, the West Coast U.S. has always been a little bit ahead of the curve. But in Canada, you know, the clean tech ecosystem was very benign at the time. And now it, it is, it's raging with new funds kind of being announced all the time. So it's come a long way. I remember in those early years, really tough to raise money. One, there wasn't many people looking at the space, but two, they were all kind of five, seven year funds. And they're like, you're not even going to have your minimal viable products kind of demonstrated by then, let alone by the time you construct scale plants and you get real revenue for an exit, like this isn't even happening in my fund's lifetime. So it was a quick no from a lot of people just because of the sector that we were in and how ambitious what we were trying to do was. Thankfully, met this one gentleman, Tom Rand from Arcturn Ventures, who was just a believer in the need to do something. And, and he felt that you'd be able to parlay it into, you know, he wouldn't get an exit through an IPO, but would be able to hand the investment to bigger investors to take it further down the road and that the size of the prize was so big that it would be worthwhile and really grateful for Tom's involvement from the early days personally, as well as an investor from uh, our first Series A venture fund. And he stuck with us through thick and thin along the way and really been a great partner for me to lean on. And I'm proud to say that his fund has also done extremely well for themselves out of it. So uh, it's worked out for both of us. Hey, getting positive returns and making the planet a cleaner place to live in, that's a win-win. You got it. It took a, took a lot of confidence and decision-making and, and just conviction by him back then. Uh, you know, 
thinking back, I, I don't even know how he convinced this investment committee and stuff to back this horse, but uh, really gratefully did. And in those early days, did people think there was, you know, just from an investment perspective, that there were no returns to be had in this type of space? It was more the uncertainty on when and, you know, what that world is going to look like. It just, it seemed like, yeah, everyone knew climate change was coming, but this could be a 20 year away, 40 year away. What the solution is, is that small modular reactors, is that something totally different that we don't know? And just the time scales we're working with, it was tough to say, let me invest now. And in 10, 15 years, we think this is going to be the right bet that pays off. It was just tough for them to draw that link. And no one was signing contracts. So you had to envision a world where the electricity markets changed and they started to value storing electricity, which you didn't really value before. And so it was a lot of, you had to have a leap of faith in a number of different areas to kind of envision the future. It was, you know, and a big risk. So it was a lot of, uh, a lot for people to digest and, and wasn't a right fit for most investors out there. And what are your thoughts in general on the progress that we're making as a society for net zero 2050? Do we have any chance of hitting that or are we going to completely miss it? And you know, what can we do or what should we be doing right now to course correct if we need to do so? It's a monumental task, what we've got to do, right? Like for a hundred years, they built an electricity grid, but it was 85% carbon emitting. And now what we're going to do is we're going to shut down all these internal combustion engines, take all these industries off of oil and gas, and we're going to electrify them. So the grid's got to triple in size and the 85% that is fossil based has to shut down and be replaced with renewable energy and firming capacity or storage. So it's just, you know, what was done in a hundred years, you know, we got to rip apart 85% of it, rebuild that with renewable and then triple it. And we got to do all that in like 20 or 30 years. So it is wildly ambitious and hard, but we are making pretty steady progress. I don't, you know, whether we get to net zero by 2050, whether we can keep the cap at two degree rise, uh, those are, I think, in jeopardy, but we are putting in a pretty good effort globally. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act in the US was a big push. The Ukraine war in Europe was a big push. You know, now we got to make sure that India and China really lean into it. But we're getting there. You see what's happening in Australia. South Australia has been running on 100% renewable energy now for, you know, most days the last couple of weeks. And so we had one blackout like seven years ago and they just made a commitment and they're there. So we can get there. It's just uh, everyone's got to keep the pedal to the metal and, and really do it because it's an ambitious, ambitious lift. And hopefully the oil and gas companies get behind it and support it instead of try to make hydrogen something that it's not and, and distract and, and use their industrial complex to focus on things that are more self-serving versus achieving the end goal that, that the climate really needs. And something I wanted to ask about as well, just because it's a hot topic, I believe it was last week they announced a big breakthrough in nuclear fusion, and there's a lot of excitement around that. Do you have thoughts on nuclear energy and how that can contribute to the net zero 2050 goals? Yeah, I think, you know, it has its place. And if they can get the costs down, the problem with nuclear has always been, you know, it's got a bit of the safety record stuff, but it's still, you look at it, in the macro, it's pretty safe. And those are pretty remote events. It's mostly been a cost thing. They take forever to build. They cost a lot more. And the public purse is giving them free insurance and a bunch of other things to subsidize them. 
So to me, it's always been a cost thing, but you know, they're very scalable. They have a lot of advantages. And so the hope is the small modular start being more manufacturing and can get their costs to where it needs to be. And fission, I mean, there's still a long way to go there. You know, we're still decades away and whether it can be done cost effectively and solve all the challenges they still have in front of them. But we need every idea possible moving forward. So I do think small modular reactors clearly have a role. Cost is the big open item. We'll see this first wave of deployments and people should keep working hard on fission and fusion to make sure that it's one more option in the whatever backpack toolbox that we have. Whether or not it can be cost effective, I'm still not not totally sure, but we should give it a shot. Makes a lot of sense. And something else I want to dig a bit deeper into, and I know we you know, can't talk about specifics, but you'd mentioned there was a, a big deal that closed, I believe it's like $1.4, $1.5 billion. Can you just talk us through what those types of deals generally look like? Yeah, I mean, in the electrical grid, they do planning and the regulatory agencies do planning and they say, you know, all these load serving entities have to buy so much energy. So that could be wind, solar, gas, whatever. And you have to provide so much capacity or backup power that you know it's always there to keep the lights on. So they kind of have a top-down planning model based on their region. And they've now said they've got so much wind and solar that these utilities have to now start buying storage or backup power for when there's no wind and sun. And they want, because of carbon policy, they don't want it to be done with natural gas peaking plants sitting idle and turning on when there's no wind and solar. So then these utilities run a procurement and they say, okay, everyone now bid. And so our team got sites, got access to the grid, bid on these contracts and came out successful, meaning that our solution does have a a compelling value proposition vis-a-vis batteries and pumped hydro, because with a newer technology, you can't just be a dollar better and, and win these contracts. You've got to be significantly better for them to take a bit of that leap of faith on backing a new horse. So the fact that in Australia and California, we've come out on top on these pretty loud, big procurements, I think shows the value of our solution. And now, now as the rest of the world keeps decarbonizing, our job is to replicate that in all the other markets and do more in those markets as well. And what do you think you've done right just from a a trust perspective to get people to believe that you guys can do what you say you can do? You know, that's always an issue with the founders that I interview. And normally it's, you know, enterprise SaaS or things like that. And and they have a hard time getting an enterprise to embrace a a new SaaS tool. So what did you do to build trust with these big government agencies and these big utility companies to get them to take that chance on you? Yeah, it's a little bit how we frame our solution. I mentioned earlier that there has been other compressed air running for decades. So we kind of frame it as we've just, you know, tweaked what was already kind of a proven asset class. We also have all proven components. And so we don't, there are no new widgets in what we're doing. It's more integration of proven components. And then we put it on our own balance sheet. So most of our competitors are asking the utilities to front the $1 billion to buy the first system. We kind of took a different approach saying, we're going to develop and win the contracts and they don't pay you a dime if you don't perform. And then our challenge isn't so much as convincing them because it's easier when they just have a pay for performance sort of contract. But then we got to go find the money to build it. And there was, you know, our bet was that that would be an easier path given the amount of money 
sloshing around looking for climate sort of investments. And with our solution, we have a high enough return profile that it covers them for that risk. So we developed our own projects and then funding them kind of on our balance sheet to start has been, I think, the winning formula that many competitors just didn't want to take that step uh, because it can be hard and dilutive and it requires a lot of capital and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, going the other way, I, you could sit there for 10, 15 years and no one actually be your first customer and, and you could regret it down the road. So we just decided to bite the bullet early and embrace this model and build the team and fund them accordingly so that we could do it this way. And how much of your time in the day is spent on regulatory stuff? I have to imagine that this is a, a big undertaking from a regulation perspective. Yeah, we have a team that does it. So I don't actually spend that much of my day on it, but we have dedicated individuals that all they do is monitor regulatory policy, intervene. We have lobbyists. We, yeah, we, we got to watch the electricity regulations very closely and make sure they're not being tilted in the favor of different technology. We just want a, a tech agnostic, what's best for the grid wins, as opposed to rules that are jerry-rigged for one technology or another. And so that's really what we're watching out for. And in the early days, did you have to lead some of those efforts from a regulatory perspective or from a lobbying perspective? Yeah, getting the first, you know, our pilot system in Ontario was done through a storage pilot program that us and uh, we created an association of other storage companies lobbied and, and got this program launched. We were pretty influential in some of the policies in, in the U.S., but also in Australia that favored storage and just uh, really pushing the regulators to think ahead about wind and solar as a bigger part of the grid. And you don't want to wait till you've got a problem to start looking at solutions, but you know it's coming. Start testing things out, start putting the framework in place. And we've set a you know, fair number of precedents with our projects uh, being kind of the first of a kind to do something in a certain regulatory construct. So uh, it has been a big part of it. And that's, I think, also why we've been successful is we've leaned into that as opposed to assuming they're going to figure it out. We've kind of tried to help accelerate that. Makes a lot of sense. Now, last couple of questions here before we wrap. What excites you most about the work you get to do every day? It's really the impact. When I think of every time we contract a plant, you're shutting down a giant coal plant or a gas plant and you're enabling a whole bunch more wind and solar. So, you know, with us doing a dozen or two dozen of these, it'll actually have a measurable impact on the world's emissions. So we have the potential to have real meaningful impact. And there's just because I believe so much in the climate battle, it's rewarding to know that we can have that impact. But it's hard work. I get a lot of people saying it must be fun, you know, leading a, a company that was a startup and now you're scaling. And and I'd like to say that it is, but it's just it's a lot of hard work and challenges. And it seems every day you got to overcome a new thing. So it's been largely a grind. And what keeps us at it is knowing that we can have that impact. And then, you know, you look back five years ago and you're like, we have really moved the business forward. It seems to move slow in the day to day, but when you stop and reflect and think back on the last year you realize the team really is moving the, the ball forward. We more than doubled our team this year. We're going to double it again next year. And so it's, um, yeah, it's rewarding from that perspective, but it, definitely a lot of hard work. Yeah, I can imagine it's a grind, especially doing the same thing for 12 years. That takes a lot of perseverance, I think, just to do that as an entrepreneur. I'm sure your brain's probably running with you had lots of different ideas at all times too, right? Yeah, exactly. And But I, I like 
the fact that I've been able to focus because I, I know so much about our technology and the industry because I've just been in it for 12 years and the industry didn't really exist when I first started. So you've seen it grow up, you know, every competitor, you go to a conference, you recognize half the faces in the room and everyone on stage. And there's something rewarding about becoming an expert in a field as well. And, and so I've tried to uh, embrace that because back in consulting, you can be an inch deep and a mile wide. It's kind of nice to be uh, a mile deep, albeit in one industry. Yeah, I can imagine. Last question here. If we zoom out into the future, what's the three-year vision for the company? Three-year vision is to get, get our first big, big plant running and have a couple more under construction and another 10 contracted is really kind of what we can achieve in the next three years. And once you've done that, the machine almost will run itself because, you know, there's construction companies out there that do this. And we then to start, we've kind of validated the technology in the business, and then it should be rolling from that point forward. So I think it's really uh, setting the course for the business and locking it in will be the next three years and really excited about it. Amazing. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. But before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? At Hydrostore, H-Y-D-R-O-S-T-O-R dot C-A. Uh, you can just subscribe to a newsletter published kind of twice or three times a year, uh, giving updates on, on all the major things that have happened across the business. Amazing. Curtis, thank you so much for taking the time to join and share your vision. This is all incredibly exciting and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Excellent. Thanks so much, Brett. Really enjoyed the discussion. All right. Let's keep in touch. Cheers. Cheers.